Jeff Cruzy is the investment director at Seraphim Space, investment firm that's specialized in the space industry. And to give you an idea, Seraphim Space is a firm that's invested in multiple Earth observation companies like Spire, Hawkeye 360, iSci, and Pixel. So Jeff knows a thing or two about investing, and this is why I wanted to talk to him, to have a candid conversation about how investing works in the Earth observation industry, how you create a fund that is the money that these firms invest in, and who do they decide to invest in. In many ways, I think we can consider this conversation an introduction to investing, and specifically for the world of Earth observation. I don't know that much about investing. I'm more of a data scientist and an engineer. I write code and build things. So this was a great conversation to start from the beginning about like how do you start a fund and how do you invest? One of the things that brings me the most satisfaction is learning things and getting this aha moments when all the pieces click together. And I think this is one of those conversations about just where the money comes from. We talk about Jeff's careers and his early days, mostly from climate tech and how he works in augmented and virtual reality, and how he found his way into the space industry and why Earth observation is a big part of that. We go over the differences between data companies like Planet, Maxar, Airbus, and analytics company who use that data to solve people's problems and how they're different from an investment point of view. I was also curious to ask Jeff about projects that are not well-suited for Jeff Venture Capital, as well as understand what happens after a company goes public or goes through an exit. Jeff talks about his vision for a centralized platform where we can task access by not only imagery, but all geospatial data in one single place. We talk about who and how such a platform could be created and if it at all could exist or not. We even throw the word metaverse in a few times, but I think it's still worth it. As usual, a bit of housekeeping before we start. The sponsors help the show keep going and grow, so here's a little bit about them. This episode is sponsored by the Radiant Earth Foundation. They support machine learning practitioners by providing open source geospatial data and code. One of the biggest projects they're working on is the Spatial Temporal Asset Catalog, or Stack for short. I got that wrong the last time, by the way. I mixed up the letters, and that's why we use acronyms sometimes. I don't like acronyms, but they're useful. Anyway, they're currently accepting nominations for the 2022 Radiance ML Hub uh, Impact Award. So if you're working on agriculture-related applications in Africa, you can go to the link below to apply for a chance to win $5,000 in cash. This episode is also sponsored by the pretty cool people at Element84. Um, they're a software engineering company specialized in big earth data applications in geospatial. They've worked on projects like bringing the Sentinel to optical imagery on AWS Open Data Program. And I've had Dan Pallone, their CEO, on the podcast. That's, uh, episode, that's episode 16, where we talk about how him and his wife founded the company and how they're running it today. You can find them and the link to the episode in the show notes as well. One quick word on the technical side of things. If you're not aware, I've started putting the videos on YouTube with a video. And I've been using a new platform to do that. And that means that sometimes I don't do things quite right yet. So as you'll hear in the episode, I'm actually using the wrong microphone. I use the one on my webcam. That's because I just didn't really pay attention very well when I set up the conversation. I'm going to try not to do that again, but hopefully the sound is all right for this time. 
One last thing before we get started. Uh, I've been doing the podcast for more than a year now, so I just wanted to say thanks a lot for listening. I really appreciate your time. I want to hear more and more from the people listening as well. So if you have any ideas on who I could get on the podcast, who you'd be excited to hear about, you can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Max Lunderman, or you can send me a message on the website at mindsbehindmaps.com contact. With all of that said, I'm Maxim Lunnemond, and here is my conversation with Jeff Cruzy. Hi, Jeff. Uh, I'm pretty excited to have you on the on the podcast. Um, as, as you probably know, I like uh, starting all the episodes the same way. I like asking people the same question. So here we go. I'd like to know how you would uh, describe yourself. How would I describe myself? Um, a curious wanderer is, is curious typically wanderer. how I've described it. Yeah. Okay. Could you elaborate I, uh, a little bit I more? Think, sure. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times I hear people talk about their careers and they have this beautiful narrative and it, you know, they, they did A and it resulted in B and it got them to their goal C. And I, I, I don't look at myself that way. I just, I just have always followed my personal interests and tried to go as deeply as I possibly could on those per personal interests while I was still interested. So I didn't have this, you know, nice, neat path uh, to where I am today. It was, it was more of a random walk and um, bumping my head against a few walls. But um, I, I think I'm, I, I think it's sort of the way I like to approach things, um, you know, just in, in regard to my career and, you know, myself. Yeah, just remain curious. And so that's like the, the guiding path about like which, which path you're going to go on, like the, just curiosity, whatever grabs your attention, your curiosity, and then you, you go down that road. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you never know, I, I don't like to try and predetermine where that's going to go. And I, I mean, for example, I, I, I went to business school, undergraduate program, um, and I didn't really have much in the way of any technical training at that point. Um, and my friend sent me a link to some Feynman uh, physics lectures and I was pretty captivated um, and then I started to go down this rabbit hole around physics um, and and I learned um, you know quite a bit um, ended up sort of hovering around um, semiconductors at one point um, and but I it also resulted in some learning around um, you know physics modeling for for game engines and 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 all these weird things that don't seem related, but you know, in some, on some level they are. Um, and so I think that, that that's really sort of the fun of it is seeing how everything is interconnected in some way, shape or form. Yeah. That's, that's one of the really interesting things. Like I, I, when we started talking, I was like, all right, we're going to talk about venture capital and investing. And then I went down a little bit like the path that you've been through and realizing like, Oh, there's like so many different portions of, like the things that you've done and the technologies that you've done. So can we go back to, you said you did, um, you went into business school, then you discover Feynman, um, like a lot of people read about it, get into, get into physics. What happens after that? Like what are some of the first jobs that, that you get and where do you start? Where does your career start? Yeah, okay, so um, I, my career started sort of on the biomedical side of business actually. Uh, okay. I come from a family of doctors, 
and I'm definitely the black sheep. I'm not a doctor at all. Um, <laughs> but I, I did work at the family business, which was a clinical research organization that was running um, federal drug, uh, food and drug administration uh, trials on various pharmaceuticals or medical devices for approval um, by the U.S. governing agency. Um, and so um, knew a little bit about you know how how things made their way through the regulatory processes and um, some of the some of the the, the key technologies um, in, in a few different areas. Um, but anyway, so so I was on the biotech side, um, but um, that was when I was doing banking, and I just did not like banking at all, and felt like it was soul sucking. Um, so I decided to put more of my core values to work. Grew up surfing every morning. Uh, in San Diego, so environment and conservation are super important to me, and that's when I started to um, look more towards um, what I'd call sort of like frontier tech, um, and uh, joined a, a corporate venture arm of a utility investing in climate tech back in 2008, and that was sort of where I started to go down the rabbit hole a bit. What was the scenery like in, in 2008 about like climate tech? I think now is a thing that a lot of people, at least in the the, the, the bubble I'm in, it, it feels like everybody is talking about that, about climate tech, like it's a huge thing. What was it like in, in 2008? Was it also a lot on people's mind? Was it something that people talked about less? What was it like? Yeah, I, I would say it probably wasn't as popular because climate tech was sort of an emerging thing at that point in time still. Um, and, and venture capital was a tiny fraction of what it is today. So um, there were quite a few funds that were looking at making climate tech investments at that point in time. Uh, one, of, one of the things that occurred to me pretty early on was a lot of the people that wanted to go invest in climate tech did so well-intentioned, but didn't have much background in sort of the hard sciences that um, you you'd typically deal with across a lot of the different climate technologies. And uh, most of the investors I, I thought were, were better profiled as uh, software investors and sort of like enterprise software. Um, and so I, I actually had received a few uh, offers to work at Silicon Valley funds, but did not accept any of them, opting alternatively for uh, joining a reboot of a corporate venture capital arm of a utility in Detroit, Michigan, of all places. So in 2008, I think I was one of the few people Moving to Michigan, moving to Michigan, um, to begin with, but I, th I thought it was a much more interesting place um, to do that kind of work because um, I was at a utility, so it was sort of at this intersection of policy and industry. What was particularly interesting about this this one utility was their three largest customers were also the American auto manufacturers, so we had um, a whole other category uh, of climate tech in our backyard where I wouldn't have had that elsewhere, uh, and then. Uh, I thought I thought that you know, I got to see sort of the other side of um, you know, the incumbent technologies that climate tech would be replacing, hopefully, um, sitting from the vantage point of the utility as well. So just just a better place to I think to sort of come to speed on on a lot of that. Um, and yeah, spent about four years doing that, and it it was it was really interesting because it's it, it looks vastly different today than it did back then. So back then, I think there were sort of like four basic buckets climate tech investors were looking at. Uh, renewables, energy efficiency, energy storage, and transportation. And I think one of the challenges of that period is that there was such a narrow definition of what climate tech was. We didn't look 
outside of those four buckets that I just mentioned and left a lot of money on the table. And I think that's what's a lot different about climate tech this go around, which is that definition of climate tech has broadened pretty dramatically to include things like companies um, uh, developing meatless alternatives because animal agriculture is actually, now we understand, you know, one of the more major contributors to pollution than necessarily like vehicles. Um, so, you know, we have to look at what moves the needle a bit more um, than we did in the past. One of the questions I, I have and was curious to ask is around, first of all, how did you get into investing? And the way you, you phrased that you said, like you wanted to move away from banking to be more on, on, on the values that you had, one of them being around the environment. How is, what made you go towards like doing investment to, in a way, scratch that itch? Like a, a lot of people um, go like want to help people and like they become like what I would say, like very practical jobs, like becoming a nurse because you want to help people. I feel like investing is very, it's much more removed. And so what made you decide or, or what factors made you go towards investing to try to contribute to helping the environment? Yeah, so I, I would say what one factor was that I, I knew that I wasn't an, a, a deep expert in any of the one in any single field um, across climate tech. I wouldn't I wasn't the one that would be developing the new LED or the new solar panel. That's just I didn't I didn't have a PhD in any of those fields. Um, so this was one way for somebody that's a relative layman to participate in value creation. And that's the other part for me, which was I wanted to help create value. Whereas banking, I felt like I was taking a port a fee off a transaction. So I wasn't really creating value. Um, and, and so that, that, that was, that was what really bothered me. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. It was just my personal preference that I wanted to, I wanted to contribute value. Um, and then, um, the other part of it was I, I thought that, um, I could learn investing to the point where I wouldn't just be handing over checks, uh, but I would be able to contribute value beyond, uh, beyond that. And that can come in many different forms. And, and I think that's more of a, um, oftentimes a knowledge base and, and a skill set that's developed over time. So um, that, that was just sort of the beginning for me. Do, do you have some examples of like what those contributions can be beyond like signing a check? Because I do think for a lot of people and myself included, like that's how I tend to see what the investment is. So what kind of other benefits are there? And, and for what it's worth, I, I, see, I hear a lot of VCs say, oh, I'm a value-add investor. And I would say 99.9% <laughs> of VCs will say that, but actually aren't. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I think most entrepreneurs will probably agree with me. Um, so, but there are, there are the, the, the rare case where like, there, there is actually value being um, delivered to the company. So what does that look like? Uh, well, um, one thing is having a panoptic view of an industry as, as an investor you oftentimes can help out in terms of strategy. Uh, that can take a lot of different forms. Um, that can be go-to-market, that can be M&A, that can be um, sorry, product development. Oh, sorry, mergers and acquisitions. So uh, making, acquiring um, uh, other companies um, to, to, you know, that might add value to whatever right. the, the parent corporation is. Um, 
And, and so um, uh, then there's you know, helping out with um, fundraising. If, if an investor can um, help an entrepreneur get a round away um, much more quickly than they would be able to by themselves, that, that in itself is actually quite valuable. Uh, and, and so that, that can come in the form of network, doing the outreach on their behalf. Um, there, there's lots of different ways investors can add value to the companies in their portfolio. So that seems to me like you, you do need to have like an understanding of the industry that you're in to be able to get to that level because you're, you're, you're understanding how the different gears and cogs are all working together. and Just even the people, who they are to be able to be like, oh, you should probably go talk to this person beyond just, here's a check, see you in 10 years. And, yeah. Right. It, exactly. I, I mean, another one that you know, I spend a lot of time on is actually hiring. Um, you'd be surprised okay. at how many times I'll, I'll be performing interviews on behalf of one of my startups. Um, so network plays a big role in that. Um, not not just in rubbing shoulders with you know rich and famous people, but which almost never happens in VC. Right. Um, but, but but delivering that to the to the portfolio companies. And so why go for investing rather than starting a company, for example? Because like what you're telling me about, oh, you're doing hiring, you're also doing outreach, you're trying to understand the industry. That sounds like a lot like what a CEO would also need to do. So why not found a company and go investing instead? Um, well, I think personally, I believe any VC worth their weight could double as a CEO or founder of a startup. I, I, I tend to, uh, I think I find a lot more value in VCs that have operational experience and have been through that path. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, yes, it, it, it does look a lot like the responsibilities of a CEO, but it's really just supplementing um, rather than, than being the main thrust. And um, so would, would I go start a startup? Yeah, I, I mean, I have in the past. I, I, was, I was formerly a founder. Um, if I came up with what I thought might be a really good idea, I might do that moving forward. Um, you know, that could incubate a company alternatively. There's, there's lots of different ways to approach that. So I want to touch on like some of your previous experience, but let's take this to take a moment. C could you explain me in like a higher level overview what the role of a venture capital is and how investing works uh, this is probably a really large question but i'd like to, to start there and then we can start expanding on earth observation space but but let's start with what investing is how it works um, and we can move on from there sure so I, I, I will describe what venture capital investing is, not to be confused with private equity or hedge okay. fund investing. So, and, yeah, and, that sounds and, great. And, and that's because I'm a venture capital investor. So um, typically what, what characterizes a venture capital investor is somebody that invests in early stage companies. So companies that are young, recently founded, um, and are looking for funding um, and, and selling minority equity positions in their companies to get that funding, using it, then to expand their business and grow it. Um, and eventually, hopefully, they take enough money to expand and grow their business to a point that it could be sold or go public at a value much higher than the original investment. And so the minor equity is like a, a part of the company. Right. right. So the, the reason I pointed out minority equity is um, venture capital investors don't acquire a company outright. They take okay. 
um, less than 50% of the company um, on right. an individual investor basis. Right. And so the you buy that, let's say, let, let's go on like 10%. You go on to, you buy 10% at the valuation of an early stage company. That's where they need like upfront capital. And then with the expectation that if they go public, that 10% is worth a lot more by that. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. So, um, you know, somebody might have an idea for um, a brand new toothbrush, but they need a million dollars to um, hire people to help them design it and manufacture it. So they'll, they'll go out to venture capitalists. They'll say, I need a million dollars. I will give you X percent of my company for that million dollars. So that tells them what a, uh, what a share price is. And then they can buy those shares. And then with that million dollars, hopefully they, you know, maybe they'll generate, oh, you know, 10 million dollars in toothbrush sales and so that that's valuable to somebody else at some point so maybe a Procter and Gamble will come acquire that company and they'll say hey you have 10 million in revenue these companies usually get two times the revenue we'll, we'll buy your company from you for 20 million um, and and so it that that is some multiple whatever the original valuation of the company was so you mentioned early stage companies what is that what does early stage mean and why is that important that they're early stage? It's important that it's early stage uh, because one thing that VC investors are looking for in their investments is a risk reward profile that justifies their investment. And typically, when you're taking, you have you have a, a relationship. Um, the higher the risk, um, the higher the return potential is. Typically, if you're if you're doing your job right. Um, so, um, so the, the reason they're looking at early stage to answer your question is because that is where you'll see the larger growth rates occur than if a company is more established. It won't grow as quickly. So, um, and, and that's really what, what that, that growth rate, that hockey, like you'll hear it referred to as hockey stick growth. Um, it, that, that's really what VCs are looking for and why they have to look at early stage companies because that risk reward profile that they need really exists at the earlier stages. Um, but there, there are different flavors of VCs too. So there's, there's VCs that focus on the earliest of stages and then there's VCs that focus on sort of the later stages of startup, um, of the startup life cycle. Can you like also, um, I'm sorry, I'm asking a lot of like these simple questions, but I want to build up on them later on. What does early stage compared to late stage mean? So early stage typically refers to uh, the, the maturity of the companies. So um, a, a, an early stage company might not have raised any funding yet. They might only have you know, three founders. Um, if they're lucky, they got a prototype uh, and, and uh, a, a business plan that they've mapped out that they think they can, they can, build, they can build on. Uh, and then they might go raise uh, a pre-seed round of funding from friends and family that might be in the hundreds of thousands of euros and, or dollars. Um, and then they'll take that, maybe they'll build a better prototype or a minimal viable product. Um, and maybe they have some early customers and they'll go back out to the VCs, raise a little bit more to continue to expand the company and so on and so forth. So you'll actually see a lot of companies raise, you know, two, three, four rounds of, of funding um, before anything like, like an exit, uh, whether it's an IPO or an acquisition. So you want to invest in early stage companies. How do you find them? 
because I'm guessing that's a really big problem as well. There's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff, but from what I understand, like by definition, you want to get there as early as possible. So how do you find those people and how do you assess how risky they are? You were mentioning this trade-off between risk and reward, but I'm guessing the earlier it is, the harder it is to also assess that risk. Absolutely. Um, so uh, to answer your question first, how, how do we go finding these companies? It, it's something of a philosophical debate because I think different VCs will give you different answers. I would say, <laughs> generally speaking, though, and in, in, in maybe, maybe some of these VCs will agree with me on this, but generally speaking, I would say most of the companies that I've invested in have been companies that were presented to me through my network. So these were people that I knew that were either investors, entrepreneurs, maybe they were a professor at a university. Um, I mean, all, all different avenues, but that, that's, that's where I would say the lion's share of, of the companies that I invest in come through. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't um, pursue other avenues because I'm always trying to fill the top of the pipeline um, with new companies. So, um, you know, I go to a lot of conferences and um, speak on panels and uh, I'll meet a lot of companies that way. Um, there are plenty of universities or government organizations that I'll go to. Um, there are, um, you know, a lot of VCs use scout programs nowadays where they will, um, you know, allocate carry to somebody that brings a company and that they invest in. So they have a program by which um, they can deploy people that aren't investment partners within their business, but they will go out, try and find companies that fit the thesis of the fund, and they will get a reward in terms of carry or, or, or something like something in, in return um, uh, for that service. Um, I mean, there's always banks, um, which, you know, it's always fun to deal with. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, it's just, I kind of, I'm kind of looking everywhere all the time um, and, and, and trying, trying really to build a stronger network to ensure um, a good flow of, of, of reasonable deal flow. So if I, if I sum it up, let me know if this, this captures it correctly. You're saying like you try to expand the knowledge of people that you know in a specific field, and then you just tell them you have an open door basically. And like, slowly build that up over time to the point where someone starts something maybe like sometimes i'm guessing like years down the line between the moment you started meeting them yeah i mean sometimes you know i'll i'll, I'll engage people pretty early on even before they have a company um, and have that conversation you know leading up to the formation of their company um there's yeah it, it's you know i probably should do a better accounting of, of exactly where where all my deal flow comes from um but uh, I mean, there's there's also a lot of data-driven ways I'm starting to do that as well. Okay. Um, because you know I think using a data-driven approach might provide more consistent deal flow. Um, and so one of the things I'm you know I think I do, and I, I'm sure quite a few other VCs do, is um, you know I'll one one of the one of the places that's fertile ground for new startups is a successful startup. So when when somebody becomes a unicorn. Oftentimes, you'll see, um, you know, the, the the early employees that have made a nice chunk of, of money off of the exit, they'll spin out and they'll go start new companies, um, and and oftentimes we'll want to know, for example, um, who's senior at SpaceX 
if they're leaving to go start up a new company. And if they are, um, I want to talk to them immediately. So there's ways you can track that, um, you know, through building your own little applications. Um, and, and that's one example of, of a data-driven approach. Right. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to go on, on the notion of, of risk. Like, I'm get, but I'm guessing it's a little bit the same thing. Like, it's like if it's a senior at SpaceX, it's probably not the same thing as someone who just comes out of university most of the time. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, risk can take a lot of different forms. There can be market risk. There can be team risk. There can even be investor risk. Um, if you've got the wrong syndicate of investors in the company, um, there can be um, technological risk. There, I mean, they can take so many different shapes and forms, and each company has a different profile of risk. And it's it, it's not very formulaic, unfortunately, um, but it's 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 just a matter of sort of being eyes wide open about what those risks are, um, and and digging them out from the information provided to you. Um, so yeah, I don't have like a, a simple answer to that. No, one. it's it's okay. So <laughs> now I want to enter like the, the the space side of things. Like, out of all the fields that you could invest in, why go towards space? Um, yeah, um, I think what happened for me, at least, and this is just sort of me following another one of those cases where I followed my interests. So I I had ended up selling my startup, uh, not, not a big exit, anything like that. It, it was a fire sale. Um, once I sold my business that was in the augmented and virtual reality market, I decided, well, okay, I think Meta has a pretty good uh, lockdown on that. I don't want to compete with them. So I'm going to refocus to a different market. I had worked with a couple of startups uh, in, in space tech um, in, in prior years. And I thought that was just more interesting. Uh, it was also a time Sorry when... Sorry to interrupt. Can you tell me, like, what year roughly is this? Yeah, so this was um, 2012 timeframe. Oh, well, okay. So I, I, well, I'm, I'm going to back up for a second. It was... Um, 2012 was when I started to become more interested in space tech because Google and Facebook were saying, we're going to put up a bunch of balloons and drones to spread internet all over the world. That sounded a little silly to me. I thought satellite communications made a lot more sense than that. So I wasn't really sure why this was being proposed. So that's when I kind of started to go down a rabbit hole talking to a lot of my friends from the satellite communications world about this and then became more interested in space tech. So I had worked with a couple of startups. One was an on-orbit manufacturing of semiconductors. Um, and then the other was a very low Earth orbit imaging company. Um, and so once I had sold my ARVR startup, that's when I decided, okay, space seems a little bit more interesting right now. Um, I don't think it's decided yet um, the direction of that market, and there's still a lot of blue ocean. So I think that that's really interesting. Um, and, and, and you know, basically, the it was a path paved by SpaceX at that point. Yeah. So 2012. What is it? Is it like Falcon One just managed to successfully launch something? Is that the time? Uh, right? I, I don't actually remember. Okay, right, but it's like really early. I like 2012. There's not as much hype in space still that there is today. Not at all. There's... So what's the what's what does the landscape look like in in 2012? Like, what are some of the early projects that you start working on? Yeah. So um, there was the on-orbit manufacturing startup that I was I was helping out with, um, sort of contributing some of my understanding of 
how all of that worked terrestrially and how we might be able to sort of reimagine re it um, on orbit. Um, and that had to do with some of my experience in electronics manufacturing, where I knew that there were some serious benefits to doing some of that on orbit. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that, 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 was, that was what took me in that direction initially. Um, and then there was very low Earth orbit. But I think at that time there was, I mean, like Planet was still sort of like a young budding company at that point. Um, I mean, I think people were just starting to get keen on new space companies getting into Earth observation on the commercial side of things. Um, and, and, and then other than that, it was like drones and balloons was the extent of the satellite communications um, outside of, I don't even think Starlink was a thing then. Um, yeah. And we weren't long out of, you know, the, the, the Leo failures of the 90s still. So nobody was really hot on that just yet. So let's go on the, on the Earth observation uh, side of things. How did, how did you get interested and how did you get into Earth observation uh, specifically like it within the, the, the space applications? Yeah. So um, my stepbrother, he um, was working on a redesign of um, uh, an electric propulsion system. Um, it's a propulsion system that would go into a lot of the satellites that uh, perform Earth observation. And, uh, and it, that was sort of my first introduction because one of the things I realized early on was, yeah, cool, you know, it's, it's a brand new propulsion system, um, but I, it's not a venture scalable proposition in that, there, you know, let's assume there are, you know, thousands of satellites up. They all, I mean, it's very fragmented in terms of what the performance criteria are that need to be met. And, and so we very quickly realized, well, maybe selling propulsion is not a great business to get into. And maybe we leverage the differentiation we have in this particular thruster um, in a market and, and, and that, that's our moat. Um, and we build a product around that. And so, and so one of the things we realized very quickly that was that this particular propulsion was good for being in very low Earth orbit. Um, and what's particularly good at that point high-resolution imaging, and there, there was sort of my first exposure to Earth observation. So you started with a tech, but weren't necessarily convinced by the tech, so you went, you went rather for the like, application where that tech could be used. Yeah. Right. Um, and so there's been a lot of development in, in the Earth observation world right now. Like, it, it's growing and growing. How do you see like the, the the field of Earth observation as it is, even from an investment point of view? Like, how are you thinking about it today, having had that background of well, ten years now, actually, in in it? Yeah. So, um, the way we initially approached Earth observation, um, at least from the investment side, was we were still looking primarily at upstream providers, meaning people that are putting up constellations, imaging in various bands. And, and that, that was, so that, that was how we um, started in, in the Earth observation market. So, so that's going to be companies like Planet, but like companies that you invested in, like, like ISI, like those buildings. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So we've got ISI, we invested in Spire, we invested in Hawkeye 360, Satellite View. Um, yeah, I mean, we've got quite a few companies that are performing EO of some kind. 
um, and putting up a, a constellation of small sets to do that. Um, so yeah, it was um, that. That was how it began, and I think what happened was a lot of those companies tried to take sort of the old space model of selling bulk data sales. They they thought they could get away with this 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 old model. Um, that that's fine for selling to to the government, of which the U.S. government is still by far the largest customer of all of that um, data. But outside of that, in a commercial setting, it it doesn't really work well that way because most companies don't have geospatial teams to make sense of all of this data. It's, it, and, it's, 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 and it's pretty sophisticated stuff even still. So there's, there's a disconnect in the market. Okay. What ended up evolving was a lot of these companies realized they needed to create verticalized products to reach the end customers on the commercial side while they can still do the bulk data sales to the US government. So, and, and so we started looking more downstream right. um, at, at analytics companies. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, because one of the things that I, I, I hear a bit, and I, I bring this example a, a few times, but Will Marshall, the CEO of Planet, like recently they went public and he mentioned that he sees Planet as, as a data company and they want to work with like partnering up with companies who are going to specialize in those verticals because the challenge of specializing in all those different fields is going to be way more complicated and require a lot of specialization that's not scalable as their imagery is, is scalable. And so they'd rather partner with those companies. Do you see that the same way as in like you want to invest in the, in the companies that are generating the data and like keeping it there and then separately in other companies who are doing the applications who become the experts or do you see that um a little bit opposed to, to will's view in, in like the same company um that's a that's a really good question and i think that's a little bit unclear to everyone in in the industry right <laughs> that's now that's why i'm asking to, <laughs> yeah so um I, I think i think there's there's maybe um one step that uh, we have not taken yet. That, and, and what I mean by that is um, we have upstream data providers and we have a lot of people that can probably make use of it, they just don't know how to. Um, so we need to create something that bridges that divide. And what bridges that divide is, I think, potentially, um, you know, some kind of um, earth observation platform that can ingest all different kinds of Earth observation data, as well as other, you know, ancillary data sets, fuse it all together, create this new super data set, um, and 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 that that is on which you know the the analytics can then be run. Um, but I think I think there's a way to have a platform by which you can acquire and analyze all this data in a in in a single place, and it can be done in a way that's a lot easier than you know needing a PhD in, in any in any of this work. So, are you thinking like the the thing that this brings up to me is how Google became the search engine for the internet? Like they became this place to find websites. Like you didn't type in the exact URL of the web page you went to. Is that what you're kind of imagining? Like a, a search engine slash fuse engine for geospatial data? 
the the way I kind of envision it is, uh, I I analogize it to the the game development platforms we have today, like the Unity 3Ds ah, or okay. the Unreal's of the world, where you build your applications on top of this nice, neat, organized, simple to use environment. That that's sort of how I view um, this this intermediate step that I think everyone's overlooked to this point. Why do you think people would have overlooked it? Um, everyone wants their walled garden. They they want to be the gatekeeper to EO, and so everybody sat in their corner thinking that you know SAR is the the answer or that you know uh, infrared is the answer or optical right. is the answer when it's it's, it's rarely yeah. ever the case. Um, so I, I think people, you know, especially now with what's going on in Ukraine, are understanding that it's actually a conflation of a bunch of different data sets that we get together. And that's, that's where we start to pull real insights from. Yeah, I, I, that, this is really interesting. I think Ukraine is a very interesting, uh, well, I mean, it's a bit unfortunate, but it, it turned into this very interesting use case where people have a desire to know what's going on. And there's this kind of manual stitching of, of the data together. I, I wrote a little Twitter thread a while ago, like trying to find all the sources of data that people are trying to bring together. And it's exactly what you were saying. There's like hyperspectral, there's optical, there's SAR, um, but there's also videos on TikTok that people can geolocate. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then there's people who are able to see traffic jams on Google Maps. Like, and, and that's really like we're trying to build this picture of what's going on for a specific use case where like it's it's crowdsourced because a lot of people care. But what you're saying is we could have that for pretty much any uh, topic, a any application like building something yeah. rather than like outsourcing it to people on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And and I think I, I, I do believe there's a way to build that in a way that's so simple that you don't need a PhD in Earth observation or you don't need to be a software engineer to, to do any of this. Have you seen Google Earth Engine and, and what they're trying to do? What mm -hmm. does that look like what you're envisioning or or not? Um, it's it's part of it. Okay. I, I wouldn't say it's the full picture. Um, so What's I, missing I think, in your opinion? Um, different people want different data over different areas at different times or they want historical data. Um, so I, I think you know that that diversity of data doesn't really exist there, um, and and so I think that that's something that I think um, is necessary. But not not even just the data being there; it's how you acquire it. Uh, and I'll give you an example. If you know I'm somebody that's concerned about what's going on in eastern Ukraine, I'll want to select different cities or towns or areas of interest at different times of day for different reasons. And I need to be able to tip and queue or task that to a satellite very easily because time is of the essence. And so I can't spend four or five days calling all the different providers trying to coordinate the data I need over a specific area because it's also rarely the case that I'll ever get all the data I need from one constellation. Right, I get you. So what you're saying is that it's it's not just about like Google Earth Engine right now is a is a read only. You can't what I mean by read only and 
compared to write would be like tasking, as in like you're writing new data. Right now, all you can do is pull from a database and, and then do analytics on top of it and, and do a dashboard. But you can't ask for specific data to be added. And what you're envisioning is it's, it's a whole it's a whole package where you want to say tomorrow I want an image there and, and without really caring who gives you that uh, image behind. Right, right. Because, I mean, and in the big picture of things, for lack of a better term, is we don't actually care about the image itself. Oh, I totally agree. <laughs> right? Like, so we, we just want the insights from the image. The, the thing is, I feel like it whoever builds this like has a tremendous amount of power over the whole industry. And so exactly like you said, everybody wants to build their, their wall garden. I think people might be more familiar with, with this, like I think more mainstream application is like all the talks about metaverse all of a sudden, like everybody's talking about it as if it's going to be this open thing, but it's the same thing. It's about like, we want to build this centralized platform where everything else lives on but like n nobody wants to go on someone else's platform so back on on earth observation do you actually see that as something that could happen and what do you think it would take to happen to be able to build that do you see anybody did you have in mind anybody who actually could pull it off I, i've seen bits of it here and okay. there not not the full picture um, I think, you know, one company that's doing pretty interesting things in that direction is Ursa. Um, they, okay. They're the, the SAR um, aggregator, and they've right. got a, a pretty neat platform that's in that direction. Okay. Not, not, not quite the full picture, I would say, of what I was describing. Um, so, yeah, there's bits and pieces of it, pieces of it everywhere. Um, and, and this could be one of those types of things that emerges not out of a startup, but maybe out of... Um, a roll-up strategy, for example, where somebody goes around and acquires a bunch of these companies, okay. puts them together, and then then we have the full picture there. Right, right. Do you see that being a... Like, the other alternative is, like, a complete open uh, platform based on, like, open standards, like, open source code, like, where nobody owns it, basically. Like, either one person owns everything, or it's made in a way where, where nobody owns it did you see that being a thing or it just wouldn't be possible um i i i would i think there will be a lot of customers that to some degree will want to keep some portion of that private and i mean a lot and i say that mainly because so, so much of earth observation data is still consumed primarily by governments and, and for that for that reason alone, I think we can say that a lot of it will still need to remain private. So I look at it as something where you can have access to um, historical data from others if they want to put it up on a marketplace. You can access analytics from others if they and put it up on a marketplace. Um, you could. Um, uh, I, I think that 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 to me is a lot more interesting because. You know, the last thing, the, the one thing we don't want to keep doing is like recreating the wheel. And I feel like so many companies are doing that um, in, in building their own environments to analyze Earth observation data. Right, right. So you, you also mentioned something like we've been talking about like military and, and, um, and civilian a little bit use. 
one of the things I'm, I'm interested in, in talking about with you as well is the the civilian potential for for Earth observation, like civilian applications. Um, to me, it, it seems like that's also something that we're we're not certain about right now. Like the way I view Earth observation, like the biggest question is like, are we building a, a house of cards where there aren't really that many applications behind it. And I'd be curious to mm -hmm. see like your point of view. Um, like there was a, a bunch of tweets recently um, where you put out, like you had invested in, in like 20 plus companies in, in space. And like you mentioned, like the, the downstream application was, was some of the things that you were exciting, excited about. Do you see that as like also the, the the pivotal thing that we need to figure out in order for this like house of cards of Earth observation not not to fall down, or do you think it can just sustain with military applications? I mean, I th I think it can sustain and and stay alive with military applications. I think that's just to keep the lights on. I think the upside right. okay. really will be on the commercial side, um, and so I I do believe that there are just so many different applications in which that kind of data can play a role, but hasn't yet, only because this is, this is still relatively new for a lot of people. And they haven't come up that learning curve or, and they haven't had the simple tools to develop on top of, on, on, on which they could develop on top of. Um, and, and I think it's sort of a, a very similar pattern we see in a lot of other industries where you know, once, once we give people you know, simple, scalable tools then, then we can see it take off, and I think you know the, that platform that we sort of described um, has a big has a big role in that. And then you know, in terms of like commercial applications, actually one of the ones, and, and you'd mentioned this earlier, was um, that I'm really interested in is is the metaverse, and 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 I hate using that term, um, but you know, but that's what everyone recognizes. So we'll just go with that for now. Well, um, I don't know. Do you have a better term? I'm, I don't also... actually. I I I, sh I shouldn't shouldn't say that unless I've got something better for you. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, I, I do think I do think it has a big role. EO has a big role to play in it because um, one of the things I think we learned early on in, in this is actually goes back to my work um, on on my company that was um, involved in Aravir. We were we were looking at building a new headset, and the headset I actually didn't care about. I wanted to give it away for free, to be honest. Um, partly because I just wanted everybody to have a camera on the front of their glasses, mapping everything all the time. And I wanted lots of people wearing them all the time, mapping everything all the time, because that's how you can scale the mapping we might need for something like a metaverse. But what I realized eventually was that only gets you so far. There's a lot that goes into that map that you can't get from a handset or a pair of glasses. And that needs to be supplemented with EO data, whether it's from a drone, from a plane, or from a satellite. Um, and I think all of that has a role um, on, on to play in, in in the metaverse. And I think you know we're seeing early signs of that um, already with companies like um, there's there's a company that Microsoft's invested in called I think it's called Black Shark. I was going to ask about it. <laughs> yeah. Have you have you seen? Um, so look, I want to bring in a bit of context for listeners. Like they helped create the latest Microsoft Flight Simulator. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I was really curious to know, like to me, this is the biggest consumer facing application of like earth observation, digital twin. I don't know how to call it, but it's not metaverse. 
Um, and it's pretty amazing. Like you can go fly over your house. Um, and so, yeah, I'm curious to, to know what you think about that. I just wanted to bring a little bit more context. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to have a map that's constantly updated with just data from handsets. And like that, that's where the EO can like help continually update that um, from, from many different sources. But I, I, think, I just think there's a countless number of applications that we'll discover that you know, are very helpful and useful once we have a functioning digital twin. But we're so far away from that. It, it's, it, it, I think it's easy to imagine a world where we're just building a bunch of virtual buildings and, 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 and all of that, um, which is fine. But that, that's, that's a little bit more like fantasy world kind of stuff. Um, whereas, uh, you know, having a real functioning digital twin of the world, there, there's a lot of, I mean, I mean, it's hard to even imagine all the applications we can build on top of that. I, I do think for me, like flying in, in Microsoft Flight Simulator was like one of those moments where it clicks about like, yeah, I could be flying anywhere in the world, but I'm going to fly over my house. And like, it, I think Microsoft like put some stats out where like, that's the first place most people went to is like, they could go anywhere, but a lot of people just went over their house. And I think for me, it was this realization that like, okay, out of everywhere, there is this thing about like just going to where you know, but in a digital aspect, like I wasn't really convinced, but after seeing that, that, that there's been this thing where it's like, okay, it. I, I get why we might want to replicate what we already have, but in a, in a digital sense. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I can, I can already imagine something like, you know, there, there's, there's a few companies out there, for example, that use earth observation data today to determine where to cut back vegetation along power lines so that, you know, it doesn't touch the power lines and we can stay nice and safe. Don't cause any fires. Um, I mean, just, just imagine a scenario where, you didn't, you know, you, that data would, you know, be directly linked to a headset um, for somebody on the ground and they could highlight which portions of the trees they needed to cut back. And, and this could all be done in an automated fashion. Right. Um, and, and so like, that's just like one very overly simple example of, you know, how that could all tie into something that's, that's useful more, more than just sort of entertainment. Right. But back to like, you know, that means like if we want to build a, a common platform to that, like Facebook's probably not going to want to work with Google on or Microsoft for that matter on bringing their Bing imagery and then having everything that they've mapped with like Oculus headsets together. Like it, it feels like as we get there, there's still going to be this clash of, of, of platforms. I, I think they'll try, but I think that's right. that's a fool's errand. Because I think of the metaverse, this, this functioning digital twin, is something that's more analogous to the internet than anything. And any one company trying to own that just seems counterproductive. That's a good way to, yeah, that's, that's the, I mean, it just even sounds ridiculous when you say it, like owning the internet. It, it sounds so big, so massive. Uh, but in a way on mobile, that's what happens. Like companies own the internet on mobile. Like. The, the App Store and, and the Google Play Stores are walled gardens where if, if you don't do what they say, your app goes, gets pulled out. And, and that might be that version of the, the, the walled internet 
just just on mobile. So it's maybe not that far off. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I'm sure, I mean, you, you could argue that, you know, by virtue of anybody using Google services, we yeah, see a no, Google version of the internet versus the real true. version of the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to come back to something that you mentioned about uh, updating as well, the what we map. Like you were saying, like it, it's nice to, like at least from what I took out of it, I'm, I'm, I forgot the exact phrasing that you used, but it, it felt like you're saying there's one thing is to like map it, but there's another which is like to monitor the, like and have an updated version of, of what you're showing. Like if you, I think a great example of that is Google Street View. Like it's it's amazing until you realize, oh, Google Car passed here in 2012 and like the whole block has changed. And so the the necess the there's this requirement for like constantly updating uh, that. Do you see that also as like happening at the same time as we map, or do you think it's going to happen where oh we have like Street View or they've done it once and like some parts just never updated? Yeah, I I think it'll be to varying degrees. For example, we don't need to update um, a map that's out in the middle of you know, a field in the middle of Alaska, yeah. in the middle where no one lives and probably won't go anytime soon. Um, but like urban dense areas, yeah, we might need to update that a little bit more often, right? Because things change and evolve much more quickly there. So I, I think there'll be varying degrees. Um, but I think as we launch more and more constellations, which there are plenty more that are going to be coming online, we'll have higher and higher revisit so we can get closer and closer to real time. And that, that becomes more and more useful. What do you think are some of the applications that happen when you have that higher revisit compared to this like one-time mapping? Yeah, I mean, you you can, I mean, the, there's, there's so, so much that can be done. I mean, there can be real-time security monitoring, obviously. You know, we can, we can geofence something and if anything crosses a certain point in real time, then, you know, alarms go off and people can be alerted to whatever they need to, to go to. Um, I mean, there can be, you know, better wildfire um, monitoring. There can be better um, traffic monitoring. There, there's, there's just like, there's so many different things that, you know, the more real-time data we can get, the more useful it really is. Um, you know, for example, um, I think a company that's really understood this very well is Tomorrow.io. And, um, you know, why they plan to launch a constellation of their own satellites at some point. And, 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 you know, to get as close to real-time weather data as they possibly can. Yeah, that's a very interesting application. I'm, I'm, it's interesting when people think about Earth observation, for some reason, weather doesn't make it in the list of what people think about straight away. But I, I think it's very interesting to see, like, what planet has done to the optical world happen to, to the meteorological world. Like, it, it is still... This very coarse data, um, both in like spatially and in time, and I, I do think there's going to be like a wild. It, it, the potential is really high. I think it's actually very interesting to me because I feel like weather applications are already like already exist. Like a lot of the imaging started like civilian imaging, not military, came out of weather uh, um, applications. Um, and yet it feels like in the private sector that has been left aside 
compared to the optical one where that came out from from my understanding maybe tell me if i'm wrong but a lot of the optical observation came out of, of military applications and then the private sector continued towards the, the the optical imagery but not the meteorological one where a lot of the use cases pretty much already exist like we all have weather forecasts on our phone and people would pay a lot of money for a better one do you have any idea as to why that might be the case um i have some suspicions um let's go so one, one of them being uh, i mean as, as you correctly pointed out it, it was sort of the domain of the government for a long time and i think part of that was because um, there's a larger infrastructure cost in the preceding years um, that was prohibitive of the private sector and why we only saw some of the largest companies trying to tackle this problem like IBM, for example. But once that cost started to come down, where we could start to you know, launch satellites with, with radar on them for you know, less than $100 million, Okay, then, then, then the economics come down to a point at which it starts to make sense to consider, you know, improvements to the to that ecosystem. Um, and and I think the other part of it was, I mean, weather modeling is like not an easy thing. It's really, really complicated. Um, and 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 so the, I mean that a lot of that talent for a long time really only existed. Um, well, in the U.S. at least, really only existed within NOAA. And and so there was a limited talent pool at the same time. So I, I think between those two forces, you know, the, it, it really struggled to sort of um, uh, penetrate the private markets. But now that that cost has come down, there is more talent. Um, and by the way, a much, much larger need nowadays, given weather volatility, um, because of climate change, right. you know, th those, those sort of come together in a way that, you know, it makes sense to start investing way more into, in, into all of this, because as you and I know, weather affects everything out there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. I'm, I'm very curious to see what comes out of that. Uh, it also get, it feels like it gets less traction in a way because it's harder to show an image. I feel like at least I'm on Twitter a lot and I, I don't like even if you follow Spire or, or Tomorrow, the, the way people hear about them is very different. Like you can't show, oh, here's an image that we, we took and like, here's what it looks like because it's it's weather measurements that you need to model. And as you said, which is like a lot more complicated. Do you think that has actually an, an impact or do you think that's just not that significant in terms of like the outreach possible just because people can actually see the stuff that's that's a really good question and i i don't really have a good answer for you there um i think i i, I always think you know you obviously to reach a wider market you have to sort of dumb things down quite a bit right. and and when when it's really been the domain of you know, highly trained, very sophisticated scientists. Um, it it, it will it, it takes time for somebody to figure out how to simplify it so it becomes accessible to people that aren't you know these highly sophisticated trained scientists. Um, and and so, I I think that's just started to happen, and 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 why we're starting to see companies like Tomorrow.io emerge. 
I want to take a, a a bit of a step back and come back to the um, like higher overview of, of venture capital. Do you think there are specific projects that aren't well suited for venture capital, or or venture capital isn't well suited for some projects? I'd be very curious to hear you on on that as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of things that venture capital is not you know well suited for. Not not every single business in the world, despite what we probably hear on the news these days, needs to be a unicorn. Um, a lot of those companies have to be a unicorn to justify, you know, the the, the funding they're taking. Uh, but you know, there's plenty of people that can build businesses that aren't venture scalable that um, you know will, will net them a, a nice return, and and they can go home happy at the end of the day. Um, you know, I've I've got friends that um, sort of they, they try and build passive income um, by building shops on on Amazon, for example. Um, and, and traditionally, that would not be something a VC would be um, super excited about, only because you know that that's there's not a lot of differentiation. There's not a there's not a high barrier to entry. Um, it's it's really driven on somebody else's platform. But you you can make a nice income for your you and your family that way. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and, and so, um, you know, on the opposite end, then, you know, there's investments that are more infrastructure. So something like a bridge, for example, that needs to be built. Um, those types of investments, it, it's, not, it's not something that's um, venturable because it doesn't have that risk reward profile that we had talked about earlier. Um, and, and so a lot of infrastructure or project investments um, aren't, aren't really where you'll see any venture capital investors. Right, right. So this actually gets me thinking about the analytics layer that we were talking about earlier. For what I understand, a lot of the reason why venture capital is is really important in the um, hardware side is because hardware is like stupidly expensive to to, to build, to research. Like the, the the tooling that you need is really complicated. On the analytics side, you need people with a laptop and and a subscription to AWS, which becomes like really high. But I feel like the, the cost of entry is much lower. Do you see that as something where we might uh, see a mix between like venture backed companies and more like bootstrapped or, or financed completely somewhere different? Like with, with something a lot more scattered than we see in, in, in the hardware space? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, and and I, th I think you, you're spot on, actually. So one of the things that we're seeing um, as venture capitalists, maybe on the software investment side of things, is the fact that, you know, it's lower, lower barriers to entry, lower cost to entry. They can start generating revenue in a bottom line a lot sooner, oftentimes, than, than a hardware startup can. And as such, you know, you don't necessarily need venture capital all the time for that. Um, and, and you can actually do these things now that, you know, where your revenue is actually financed. So you can get some, it, it looks a lot like a debt vehicle that you'll receive based on, you know, the cash flows that you're generating as a startup. And, and you can take um, funding that isn't dilutive at that point then because, you know, it's financed by your revenue. Right. Um, and, 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 those, and those can be really attractive alternatives to venture capital. And, and, it, and, and I think it's no surprise that, you know, some of these companies that are out there doing that right now um, have, have gained a lot of traction very quickly. Right.
yeah, it's it's pretty fun building a a podcast. Seems to be a little bit the same thing. Like the the barrier to entry is very low, <laughs> and like consi- like taking it as a as a business like that feels a little bit like this about like how do you keep going and moving on uh, like that. Um, I, I do want to stay on this um, uh, financing of, of, of venture capital. One of the again pretty simple questions I had was where does the initial money come from that's the question <laughs> uh, the initial money um for the venture capitalists or the yeah initial yeah, money yeah for because the, for the like it's it's an upfront for for the for the venture like because it's an upfront payment with things that look like a like year-long payoffs um and i'm guessing there's like all the failed projects as well so i'm quite curious to understand like where, how, how do you start a fund and how does, what, where does that money usually come from? Yeah, so um, I would say that where the money comes from differs by the stage of, of the firm, the investment okay. firm. So I'll give you an example. Um, very early on, new, new funds will oftentimes go to um, high net worth individuals and family offices. Um, and that is because they are sometimes uh, they'll they'll have an allocation for like high risk investments, um, and and sometimes VCs a part of that. Um, they use that to sort of turbocharge their returns, and um, and and so they're 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 oftentimes happy to take sort of that that high risk um, in uh, investment into you know a first time manager um, with their first fund. Um, it's also typically because. They're willing to write smaller checks, um, and and you know into first-time funds, which are typically smaller. Um, so, as as a, um, a management company um, that's you know it's a as a firm that's managing a venture capital fund, um, you know, might find some early success. They might go out and raise fund two and fund three. Then the profile of your um, limited partners or your your fund investors begins to change a bit because you'll need larger and larger checks for a larger fund. Um, then you start to get into institutional investors. Um, those can be university endowments. Those can be um, uh, pension funds. Those can be um, asset managers or hedge funds. Uh, there, there's a lot of different um, um, avenues. Um, and, and we're starting, and there's even specialized funds called fund of funds out there. Okay. So yeah, there's there's a, there's a number of different sources, um, and and I would say none of them are exclusive to, to any. Right, right. So it's it's a mixed bag of, of like all these different sources. That then your job as as a venture capital is to like take that pool of money and then try to find which projects that you can allocate it to. Exactly. So the way it traditionally works, and this is another thing that's evolving within venture capital these days, um, but traditionally. Most venture capital funds have five years to deploy that capital and then another five years to harvest returns from those investments by by selling um, the company, taking it public, or selling their shareholding to somebody else. Right. Do you think that, like, I, I feel like a, 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 like a cynical take that I hear sometimes is, is the fact that, like, that's still quite short, like five years uh on, on the returns on some of the projects that you you might want to have how, how do you think about that do you think it's a it, it's a um 
can't find the word, but um, a, a proper take on that? Or, or do you think it's just like we need to find other ways to invest in projects that might be longer term? I, I, I think we do need to find different ways to invest in projects that are longer term. And, and I say that predominantly from the, the frontier or deep tech um, vantage point, because generally speaking, um, a lot of those companies, like you correctly pointed out, um, have longer time horizons to exit um, and will take on more dilution. And it just so happens that you know, that number looks closer to 12 or 13 years versus a 10-year fund, fund life. And so the 10-year fund life can create a perverse incentive where there might be a situation that you know, uh, an investor into a company is approaching year 10 and needs to harvest returns and it creates you know, the situation where that investor might be pushing a startup to go public or sell themselves before they really should be. And then, then we start getting into this problem um, that I'm sure you can imagine can, can get out of hand pretty quickly. And, and the way to alleviate that is, um, you know, there, there's, well, there's a lot of like innovation going on now, now around this, you know, by virtue of using permanent capital structures. So evergreen fund structures where, you know, the, the returns are recycled instead of being paid out to, to fund investors. And so it's more like holding share in a company than it is, um, and, you know, being owed a return based on, on distributions from an investment. Right. One of the things I also wanted to touch upon is um, <clears throat> the, the exit strategies and what happens after, actually. Is it, from, from a venture capital point of view, is it like the end game is, is going public and then that's where the work with the company stops and they take mm -hmm. on themselves? What's the relationship that happens at, at that point? It, there's all t all types. Um, there there are some investors that once a company has gone public and they can they they're out of the lockup, they can sell their shares. That's it. They're done. Mm. Um, but you know, there's there's often cases where you know, you might realize that the company still has a lot of upside. You want to hold on to it, um, and and continue you know to help the company grow. Um, sometimes that includes you know the investors on the board still um, supporting the company from 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 that position. Um, so yeah, you, you have all different types and it, it really just depends on the profile of the company and where they're at at a point in time um, and what avenue they decided to go. Um, because yeah, once, once it's sold then, you know, uh, it, via an acquisition, then, you know, the parent company takes over at that point. Right. Um, One of the interesting things that's, that's been happening on like the past year or two is, is seeing how many companies have uh, gone public in the space, uh, and especially like Earth observation. Actually, um, there's been this word like uh, SPAC thrown around a lot, and there's the, we're seeing these like crazy valuations for and, and projections for for some of these companies. Um, this is like the first time I am actually paying attention to any of this in any industry. It seems wild to me some of the valuations that that we're seeing for those companies. Is that do you see that as being like some of those being wild as well, or is this like business as usual in in like in normal numbers for other um, <clears throat> uh, uh, other fields? So I, I would say, you know, in the backdrop, we we have been achieving sort of historical highs, and in terms of valuation and money invested, um, and it's in, in venture capital, it's typically a pendulum swing between you know you know. Um, 
large money supply um, that you will, will drive massive valuations because people need to justify their investments. Um, and then you know there's typically some kind of market correction that money supply contracts. And instead of focusing on growth, everybody's focusing on bottom line. And so you kind of you kind of go back and okay. forth. And I, I mean, so I've heard people say you know it's something like a ten year cycle, um, you know, ten twelve year cycle, um, and that seems to be about right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would say that you know there is this um, there's this cycle, and and you know in regards to spec, it's interesting because it 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 it's very has a lot of parallels to my time in climate tech back in 2008. Okay. And um, so what happened in 2008 was an IPO window started to open and there had been, you know, a lot of liquidity for climate tech up to that point in time. And once that window opened up, every VC was just cramming through every single company that could possibly get through the IPO window before it closed. And so you had a mixed bag. You had some companies that were great. They lasted a long time thereafter um, and they're still around today. Um, it's funny. It's one of the usual suspects. Still, Elon Musk. I mean, that's 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 an era that Tesla came out of, um, and 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 so I wouldn't say it was a failure. I would just say it's it's pretty par for the course, really. And so I think we saw a lot of that happening with with the specs in in, in similar fashion, where there are some really good companies, there's some not so good companies, but everyone's trying to cram their businesses through through the window, the exit window. Um, as quickly as they possibly can, and that creates, um, well, you know, an oversupply, and then eventually it contracts again, and and, and there we go. So, um, you know, my view, you know, there, I think there will be good companies that survive and do just fine, and you know, the ones that were um, a little less forthright um, on their projections, you know, they they won't be around, or though, and, and so um, I think what that leads us to is, at least on the EO side, I think there'll be quite a bit of consolidation in in the coming year, right. Too. Do you, like, I, I don't know what the, the the term might be, but in, in the world of artificial intelligence, there's this notion of, like, AI winters that happened in on the tech side. Like, I think there's been, like, two or three where the, 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 there was, like, a huge hype cycle, and then, like, it just came crashing down more on the research side of things. Um, and then like it started again and then it crashed again and then it started in like 2012 again in, in the current cycle. Do you think that could happen as well on, on like on the tech side that we're like maybe in a bubble that could just pop on the earth observation side or do you think it would be less dramatic than that? I, I don't know that I would refer to it as a bubble, but I mean, I, I think, you know, you correctly pointed out, you know, these these hype cycles and the valley of death and, and it kind of, you know, we, we go between the two. Um, and that's a pattern we see across a lot of different industries. So uh, what do I think will happen? Yeah, we'll, we'll, I mean, I think we've been through the hype cycle. People are a little bit wiser now. And so we'll see a bit of a pullback. Um, but that's fine. I think that that's sort of cutting fat in a, in a way where we get rid of, you know, a lot of the money that, you know, might have been dumb money and made poor investments. Right, right, right. That'll fall away. But, you know, the stronger companies and the stronger investors will, will remain. And so it'll become popular again. And, and, you know, for example, you know, 2008, climate tech definitely fell out of favor after a while. Um, yeah. I, think, I think largely by 2010, it was sort of a taboo topic at that point. Okay. And because, you know, well, for a lot of reasons. But, um, you know, irrespective, it reemerged, you know, the last couple of years as, you know, one of the biggest 
segments of investment for, right. for VC, um, you know, coming back bigger, better, stronger than before. And, 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 you know, I think we'll go through those same cycles with space. Um, but I think ultimately long-term, you know, I'm still long space because, you know, there, there's, there's so much that can still be done and so much upside that I don't, I don't think it'll fall away. Especially once Starship hits, once 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 that happens, it's a it's a it's a, again a different world that we'll be living in. That's the thing I've I've heard you talk about a, a few times. So like just to again bring in a bit of context, Starship is something that SpaceX is developing, which is basically trying to a hundred x the payload. Um, that the like first of all, payload compare cap. God damn it capability that we can send at once, but also like divide the, the price per kilogram roughly by 100x as well, at least if, if things are to be uh, followed from what SpaceX is saying. And so you're saying that's also going to be like just a, a jump start even more for um, just sending stuff, but we're maybe even talking about like beyond Earth um, orbit here. Yeah, well, I mean, um... I, I think, you know, sort of, I, it's funny that you use the term beyond earth because that, that's, that's a, a phrase that I use for companies that are I mean, literally looking at markets beyond earth. But I think okay. a lot of that's going to be the domain of governments for the foreseeable future and why I don't spend a lot of time looking at sort of the beyond earth category. And, and what, what makes you think that? Like, wh why? Um, well, I, I, I don't know that there's a great commercial argument that I've heard yet for um, right. you know the cislunar economy just at this point most of it you know I, I think are companies that are being funded by government contracts in right. the absence and so in the absence of like a commercial argument it's hard to invest in okay um, right I see well this has been like really cool to, to, to understand a lot more on on this aspect of like the whole economy and, and like the, the, the whole just field of earth observation in general that I think like drives a lot of the things that we see. I think following the money is something I'm trying to do a lot more. And this is, this has been like really interesting to, to be able to understand that before I, I'll let you go. I like asking uh, the same question at the beginning, but I also like ending with the, with the same question. And so I'd like to know if there are any um, books or podcasts that you've read or listened to that you've enjoyed and you think are, are worth sharing, not necessarily in any of the topics that we've talked about. It can be, but just anything like even like fiction or, or whatever, just something that you think is worth sharing. And I, I like asking those because um, podcasts and, and books are, are, are pretty hard to discover. Um, and so I like asking people um, about recommendations. Sure. Um... I would say one podcast that I find myself listening to quite often is um, Sam Harris's podcast. Um, I, I forget what it, I don't think it's called Waking Up Anymore. It, it's got a different title now, but Sam Harris is pretty well-known public intellectual. And um, I, I, think, I think he discusses a lot of interesting philosophical points that um, I'm not smart enough to synthesize myself, so it's fun listening to him um, talk about it. Um, and I think that's one I really, really enjoy because it's just he touches so many different interesting topics. Um, and it just ranges very widely. Um, another one that I think I listen to pretty, pretty often is um, 
is it Alex Friedman? Um, Lex Friedman. Oh, Lex Friedman, thank you. Sorry about that. Yeah, Lex Friedman. Yeah, it's just like, it's, it's, it's enjoyable. It, it's fun to sort of hear about other, you know, really, really smart people and what, how they think about, you know, their fields. And um, yeah, it's just sort of a fun exploration. Um, and then, yeah, what I, else I wouldn't, is there? we wouldn't be having this conversation if it were not for, for Lex Friedman uh, podcast. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a great one. I love it. Um, I, w- I would say those are like sort of like my two staples. And then there's right. like a bunch of like true crime podcasts that right. I won't tell you about that I listen to all too often because that's my like my 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 dessert. Right, so right. <laughs> do you have any? Uh, I I know you you seem to to tweet a lot about books. Do you have any books that that you recommend? Um, sure. I think one of the books that's influenced my thinking over the years the most is a book um, called Godel Escher Bach, and I thought I I found it particularly interesting because um, I do a lot of art in my free time, okay. and it's focused around things that are universally beautiful. Um, and and I, so I sort of came to it um, through music actually, and I don't know anything about music, but what I did realize is you know we can all speak different languages but we can listen to um uh, a song written by mozart and just by the way it sounds we can all recognize it as being happy or sad um we can we can we can identify it without having to say the same words um and so i i i i think there's sort of a parallel concept in in art there's just these things that we often find universally beautiful um and 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 where that comes from um, and so, um, yeah, that's, um, geez, I lost my train of thought already. Sorry. Could you just repeat the, the name of it? And, and do you remember? Who oh, Godel Escherbach. That, that, that's where, that's where I was going with it. So, um, so, um, so in art, I started to realize there's like these like universally beautiful things and, um, and you know, that can, you know, the, like the, the golden ratio, for example, you'll hear about that in right. art a lot and how that's, you know, attractive to the, to the eye. Um, and so, uh, I, I, you know, I really wanted to start to explore those concepts of what this sort of order is that we're all attracted to, um, this underlying order. And, and then, and this book discusses some of that in a really fun way across different disciplines. And, and so that, that's one of the reasons I enjoyed it was because you really start to understand that, you know, a lot of times you know, what you learn in one field can be directly applied to something that you think is totally unrelated. Um, and, and, and therein, you know, lies some fun and interesting discovery. Right. Do you, do you, do you know who, who wrote this? Um, uh, I can probably look it up. Um, it's Douglas Hofstadter. Okay, thanks. I was just a little bit afraid not to be able to find it just from, from the name alone. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a really fun book. Okay, cool. Well... Thanks a lot for, for, for uh, answering all these questions, spending some of your valuable time with me. It's been a very insightful conversation. Uh, so thanks a lot for, for coming here and talking with me. No, thank you. It's been a lot of fun on my end as well. That's great. That's, that's one of the best things I could ask for. Mm-hmm.